I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. As computer devices grow more personal, portable, and affordable, more and more schools are implementing blended learning, combining online instruction with traditional methods in order to give students more agency over how, when, and where they learn. My guest today argues that this third variable, the where, calls for some serious rethinking of how school space is designed and deployed. What should schools look like in order to succeed with blended learning? And will a need for new facilities become an obstacle to innovation? I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Larry Kearns, a principal at Wheeler Kearns Architects, a Chicago-based design firm focused on educational and cultural projects with ambitious social, economic, and environmental goals. His article, New Blueprints for K-12 Schools, will appear in the summer 2017 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Larry, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Oh, I'm uh, happy to be here. Thank you. So, Larry, looking at school architecture is a bit of a departure for us as a journal. I don't think we've ever published a blueprint before, but your article makes the case that how schools are designed is critical to their success. Why? Yeah, uh, that's uh, something we feel strongly about after uh, working with schools for 30 years. And this, uh, uh, you know, blended learning is certainly a point that uh, makes this idea of a facility um, and the fit of a facility very poignant. Our, our, our major emphasis on this is that uh, the facility uh, for a school is not an innocent bystander. It's an active participant in the learning model. Uh, it's just that uh, for so long we've had ingrained a single uh, learning model uh, in our culture, and now it needs to change uh, with this blended learning uh, model. I think in many cases we don't think of the facility or the design of a school as something we can change because we do have this fixed stock of school facilities that we use, right? But uh, yeah. but your, your uh, article focuses on opportunities that you had to work with two new charter schools that really were starting from scratch. So I'd like to focus our conversation on your work with intrinsic schools in Chicago. You started right. your work with that school in 2012, and the high school began using the facility you designed in the fall of 2014, I believe. That's Can, correct. Can you tell us a bit about your process for working with Intrinsic? Sure. It was uh, the minute uh, we met uh, Melissa Zakos, who is the founder, um, was we knew that uh, this would be uh, an exciting project from a, a space point of view because the goals were so ambitious. Um, you know, blended learning really, uh, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, takes digital learning and combines it with uh, real-time traditional um, teacher-led learning. But uh, her ambition was actually to build on her experience that she got uh, in nine years working as a Broad Fellow in Chicago Public Schools. And what she discovered in that uh, experience was that uh, when she was able to combine digital learning, uh, she was able to group students and and uh, in the teacher-led uh, instruction really target uh, and and teach students where they were. 
uh, and to really accelerate their uh, growth. And uh, so when she started explaining uh, what she wanted here, we knew clearly that it would. Uh, she was talking about a different type of environment because the needs were uh, so different uh, than a traditional school. So you all considered converting an existing school facility in Chicago, but quickly decided not to. Why, and, and where did you end up instead? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, part of this, uh, whenever you're, uh, we, we look at really a, a new type of use, we really have to examine what that use needs rather than to shoehorn it into an existing model. So that's the approach we took. Uh, more or less along the lines of design thinking to start understanding what these new new environments would need. Essentially, the you know the traditional school, uh, some call it an egg crate school or whatever. I mean, it's a you know a cellular rooms on both sides of a common hallway, right? That we all know. Um, the amount of space uh, and the configuration of space is fairly limited in these old buildings and. We looked at quite a few schools uh, and determined that we were far better off uh, looking at spaces that had uh, more open area and uh, just greater dimension in order to hold um, more students and instructors in a, in a common area. So um, we uh, began prototyping different types of spaces, and the most promising ones were not just enlarged rectangles, if you will, like scaling up a traditional room. They became much more irregular, like uh, T-shaped spaces or L-shaped spaces and footprints that gave uh, instructors uh, and students working in the same space um, a compromise or a combination of individual areas um, where they had some autonomy while still being open to one another. So we, we liken this to almost like a Venn diagram, a physical Venn diagram, where you have some overlap between uses, uh, but they're still open with one another. So that's really at the crux of um, trying to accommodate multiple modes of learning in the same physical space. And we, we really identify three types of, of learning that we need to accommodate in these open spaces. One is uh, simply teacher-led small group instruction. Um, usually we're targeting uh, smaller groups than what most people think of an entire class of, say, 30 or 28 students. Um, these are more targeting 10 to 12 students. So we have that teacher-led small group. In addition, we have students learning individually at their own velocity, um, uh, usually on digital devices, oftentimes with earbuds in on uh, Chromebooks or similar devices, um, learning at their own pace uh, individually. And lastly, we have peer-to-peer -peer learning where kids are learning from other uh, kids, right, student-to-student -student learning uh, in um, usually grouped around tables. So we have all these three environments that we need to accommodate in, in one open space. And these uh, time and time again, uh, this idea was reinforced that these sort of L-shaped irregular spaces or T-shaped spaces uh, seem to be really, really good fits uh, for that model. It seemed to me as I was reading your article that one of the key challenges was managing the level of distraction or noise that students would experience because of the multiple modes of learning that other students were engaged in uh, yeah. over the course of the day. Yeah, you are absolutely right. So uh, we uh, also, through 
um, through time have really, uh, I think, acquired some pretty good insights into, the, into this. And after having sort of uh, four years plus under the belt, uh, sort of in the feedback loop with teachers, but one thing that's really critical um, is there some obviously pairings of teacher-led small group instruction. Those physical spaces have to be distant enough from one another uh, so that they don't interfere. Um, however, in almost all cases, they're far more effective if the teachers uh, can see each other, even though they're at remote locations, uh, so they can com communicate, uh, in many cases, non-verbally uh, and uh, observe the room. So you have that consideration of uh, uh, teachers talking, um, instructing as they traditionally have done. But then you have other uh, situations where you have individuals that need to work. Um, and that took us a time, uh, quite a while, to figure out uh, the best solution, which um, we've nicknamed in the end uh, a coastline. So essentially, uh, uh, it's a coastline of desks, if you will, at the perimeter of the room. That proved to be pretty uh, good solution because it kept students from distracting one another. Uh, allowed the teachers to observe, and over time, uh, students have come back with feedback that they really do appreciate that as another environment for them. Um, the other thing we, we encountered is some counterintuitive uh, pairings of these spaces where um, actually the peer-to-peer -peer learning, which might have uh, a fairly vibrant conversation between a group of students is actually paired pretty well with the coastline of individual work where students are oftentimes have their earbuds in and are focused on something independent. So over time, we've um, noted that uh, these combinations, there's ways to put these learning groups together um, that uh, it, uh, has a really good balance between uh, openness and autonomy and uh, limits those distractions. One of the other things I noticed you learned over the course of piloting and iterating with different approaches was uh, that teachers, though they initially weren't interested in having a traditional desk of their own, actually ended up having a need for some sort of solution to manage their materials. Right. Tell us about how that process evolved. Yeah, I mean, and I... You know, I say this with uh, much empathy, right, because, I, you know, uh, when we're trying to envision these spaces, we're talking to master teachers uh, before we've done any of these trials and the incubation uh, period, and they said, no, 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 we're not going to need uh, traditional desks, so they'll serve no purpose. But, you know, what was very fortunate for Intrinsic uh, was that they actually had uh, their purchase of a shuttered lumber yard, which was ultimately uh, the building um, that that we improved, their purchase of that property was actually delayed, and so that forced them, uh, compelled them to actually incubate downtown in Chicago uh, in a former space uh, used by a college. So uh, we were very fortunate that we were able to trial uh, these. Um, sort of pod arrangements, as we said, these different learning uh, arrangements. And we very quickly learned that although teachers tried to forecast their behavior, they weren't so great at it in some cases. And the teacher's desk was one of those where um, uh, quickly teachers took a student desk and adopted it at their own, and it began to look like a teacher's desk. Uh, so we were able uh, to actually, when we built Intrinsic's permanent facility, we were already on the second generation, and we were able to make 
adjustments to what people forecast their behavior to be uh, and what it actually was. Um, another case where we were surprised is that our initial, and I think both the, the teachers and our initial emphasis on this, our push, was for maximizing flexibility. So we tended to make these uh, learning spaces very, very flexible so that they could be rearranged from one part of the room to the other. But with so much flexibility, uh, these environments became a little unwieldy, chaotic, and pretty stressful uh, to navigate. Um, so we ultimately settled on uh, a, a design where uh, uh, different types of learning are, are, are uh, um, occur in very purposefully designed spaces, and they don't move from day to day. Uh, and that has proven uh, wildly successful over what our initial impressions were. Now, a lot of listeners may think that what you're describing sounds a lot like the open classroom model that many schools adopted in the 1960s and the 70s, but you push back on that comparison in your article. What were open classrooms, and how do these new designs differ? Yeah. You know, I have to say uh, Chicago, of course, has its uh, share of uh, those types of learning environments that were built in the 60s and 70s. So uh, we're very familiar with them from walking through uh, them. You know, I think the sort of zeitgeist of that time was uh, this idea of universal space. And the, the idea there that was held is that pretty much anything can occur anywhere, and that uh, space was very much a commodity and could be sliced off as required uh, for to uh, accommodate different functions. Um, that proved to be pretty much a disaster. The distractions and the, the, the lack of any sort of uh, discipline or definition of space uh, was really uh, an inhibition to, to learning, you know, uh, although it was well intended. So our, our take is completely different uh, in, in, in uh, this modern iteration of an open learning space. It's actually that the space is not universal at all, is that uh, different types of learning are, uh, occur in parts of that space that are very purposefully designed and orchestrated to minimize those distractions and maximize uh, the positive benefits of being open uh, both for the students and, and the teachers as well. The, the other uh, missing ingredient, of course, in the 60s and 70s was the digital learning itself, right, uh, which really powers uh, a good part of this blended learning. Um, without those devices, uh, this actually made those environments even more challenging. Now, your work on these projects has drawn interest from several traditional school districts interested in piloting blended learning models they wanted to learn more about the facilities demands. What did you learn from those engagements? You know, I think uh, uh, the first thing that that we learned is that uh, first we have to develop uh, a way to talk about these different environments, and we actually had a, a, our own language so that we could begin to talk about the demands and the needs for these. I, I think that the administrators we've worked with are – um, openly curious and willing to deploy this, but many of them have a desire to be able to have these spaces reversible so that they can revert back to traditional teaching if they don't find success. And what really has eluded us is a model that can, uh, of a learning space that can go uh, fit both the traditional and the blended uh, model. That, to us, appears 
extremely difficult since the, the needs and the dimensions of the spaces are so different. So that has been an eye-opener uh, where we get that request and um, to be able to say, hey, we want to switch back at some time. Um, I think from our point of view, this is something that you have to uh, jump in with both feet and uh, agree and design a space uh, uh, meant specifically for this type of learning. Now, these were clearly ambitious projects. Uh, as readers will see from the images that accompany your article online, the results are visually stunning. So how much does all this cost? You know, uh, it, we were uh, pleasantly surprised uh, uh, that these uh, Construction costs that we encountered uh, were uh, very competitive. Of course, every project is a struggle, and I, I think people will know that uh, these schools uh, were rather lean schools as uh, London Learning Charter Schools. Uh, they perhaps, uh, you know, by definition, don't have the extent of the different types of dedicated learning spaces that a district school might. But what we found is, uh, uh, in two instances, a lot of efficiencies. Um, one of those is just the lack of circulation space compared to a traditional school, where you had so many different compartments or, uh, or, or separate rooms that you had to occupy. It um, increased the amount of circulation space, just hallway space of being able to get from space to space. What we found in our uh, blended learning projects is that really uh, began to diminish. And I'm, I'm talking about terms of, you know, perhaps 10 to 15 percent less space dedicated to circulation. And, of course, that um, has nothing to do with effective learning. So we're able to convert some of that space um, into active learning uh, areas dedicated uh, within these pods or learning areas. The other thing that, that we noted is that uh, because there's just fewer number of spaces, there's fewer numbers of uh, light switches, of uh, heating and cooling units, different uh, fewer zones, there's just fewer doors, there's many fewer components. And uh, over time, our, uh, our estimates show that this is pretty much a 6% reduction over a traditional school. So, you know, the, the one thing we were trying to investigate is this uh, a neutral switch, and we actually concluded that actually uh, square foot for square foot, this was uh, even more competitive than building a traditional learning environment. Now, the technology that powers blended learning continues to evolve. For example, we've discussed on this podcast the potential for virtual reality in the classroom, and it's increasingly feasible for schools to have tools like 3D printers in every classroom. Given this, how do, how do you all think about the challenge of designing schools, not just for today's version of blended learning, but also for tomorrow's? Yeah, that's a great question because, uh, you know, one of our mantras is that uh, schools should not be one size fits all, right? Like that. And to just reiterate and saying now school design should look just like this, um, you know, uh, has uh, equal limitations. But I, I do think that one of the things we've uh, explored is integration of this digital technology, just not being a Chromebook but being a 3D printer, being a, a laser printer. Um, and what we've seen is that these devices are currently being deployed in rooms dedicated to them, uh, much in the same way that computer labs first arrived on the scene, right? 
which we find very few occasions of uh, for a new school design. So our, our inkling is that these devices, as they continue to fall in price and that they get more user-friendly, they'll just become another uh, digital uh, learning tool. So actually, even in Intrinsic's uh, first-iteration models and our prototypes, we always had uh, places in, in the pod, the open studio learning environment, uh, for these sorts of tools, and they have been deployed uh, in, in intrinsic already in some of our other uh, schoolwork uh, in uh, typical uh, uh, learning situations, and they have both uh, STEM uses, so to speak, uh, as well as humanities uses. My guest today has been Larry Kearns, a principal at Wheeler Kearns Architects and the author of New Blueprints for K-12 Schools, which will appear in the spring 2017 issue of Education Next and is available now at educationnext.org. Larry, thanks for the article, and thanks for taking the time to join me today. Oh, you're quite welcome. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.